When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourself. Bienvenidos, bitches. Buiti binafi. And thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Hoops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims, and those who are othered, because contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, able-bodied, white dudes. What? Uh, no. And these crimes rarely get any public attention because the news is racist. Allegedly. <laughs> and we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. Hey, y'all, she's joining us on the co conspirator train. Choo choo. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists, just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions. All right. So, who? Are we talking about today, Beth? Well, today we're talking about Crystal Gale Mangum, best known as the woman who falsely accused three Duke University lacrosse players of rape. But she is also a convicted murderer. Yeah. My, oh my, the journey we've gone on with this Ms. is Mangum. a story. Yeah. And I remember it from the beginning. I remember yeah. all the feelings I had. Yeah. The day that news story came out. Right. So let's get into it. But before we do, <laughs> real quick, <laughs> so silly over here. How you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, not much to report, really. How are you doing? Oh, great. Fall is here. It's Yay. almost Halloween. Uh, it's, uh, I think today was National Podcaster Day. I oh, might wow. be making that up. 
Also, um, I uh, had therapy this week and my therapist was like, we need to talk about getting you prepared for discharge. What? And I was like, what? Are you fucking kidding me? You think I am ready to be discharged from therapy? <laughs> the world is falling apart. It's fall. And you know, I hate this time of year. It's only a matter of time before like something happens that makes me snap. And you want to talk about discharging me? I don't know what to th- I don't know what to think. But I was like crying. Like, are you breaking oh. up with me? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Discharge? I am I am gonna be in therapy till I die, okay? <laughs> so anyway, I guess it's a good thing to be like it is a good and thing shit. that she she's like, you know, you're doing pretty good. That's yeah. good news, right? I guess so. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> what do you and her know? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, so uh, overall, all is well. In that case, let's mosey on down to the postal service, right? And okay. we can see what listener letters we have. Hang okay. on. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. <sighs> What's in the bag, Beth? Well, I wanted to say thank you to Schimare or Schimare. <sighs> Not sure. But thank you for your five-star review. Yes. Thank you, Schimare. Oh, we thank you. And we appreciate you so much, Schimare. And then I wanted to say, please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, join us on Patreon, where we have literally hundreds of hours of bonus content. And we have a video club for 12-plus patrons where you can interact with us in person. Hey, we don't have any new patrons this week, but I would like to say thank you. Gracias. Danke schön. <laughs> to all of our current Patreon supporters, yeah. our day ones, our fruities, even people who just did like a quick cash app donation here and there, yeah. people who took a break and came back. There's room for everybody. Yep. We even have free patrons. I don't know if there's a free tier or if patrons is letting people sign up but not have access to the bonus content. I Patreon sends us a Weird. lot of emails. Yeah. I don't read all of them. But it yeah, looks I like know you can be a Patreon about. for free. <laughs> <laughs> and so all I'm saying is to everyone rocking with us, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Yeah. We couldn't do any of this without you. So let's take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. Okay. <laughs> On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. We're back! Remind us, Beth. Who's our subject today? Crystal Gale Mangum, the woman widely known for falsely accusing three Duke University lacrosse players of rape. Less known is that she is also a convicted murderer. Yeah, we're going to get into all of that. Um, First, we would like to say love and light to the murder victim in this case, which is Reginald Day, who was 46 years old. He was her boyfriend at the time. Yeah. I also want to say... Love, light to the community, the Duke-Durham community. I imagine that for residents and students that the incident with Mangum was like traumatizing. Yeah, I would think so. Disturbing. Yeah, Yeah, it was a lot. And then I also, you know, just want to say love and light to the community and, you know, everybody who is impacted by this story in its entirety. It's a long one. So here we go. Let's get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, the setting is Durham, North Carolina. Durham County sits on land that historically belonged to the Eno, Tuscarora, and Okanichi peoples, among others. Durham, North Carolina was officially established on April 26th, 1853. It's North Carolina. I just like saying North Kekalaka. Anyway. <laughs> North Carolina. <there>. Yeah. <laughs> North Carolina. Come on and raise up. Take your shirt off. It's around your head. It's like a helicopter. Um, and so anyway, in Durham, which is a lovely place, Durham, North Carolina, was officially established April 26, 1853. There were thousands of farmers who owned cotton, tobacco, and grain human trafficking plantations where Black people were enslaved. Stagville was one of the largest in the region, and there were approximately 900 enslaved Black people that lived and worked on its 30,000 acres. Wow, that's That's a lot. That's a lot of human beings to work the land, but I imagine there was also a lot of breeding of enslaved Black people, which was also quite profitable. And very disturbing. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So Stagville Plantation dates back to the 1700s as a wheat, corn, rye, and textile farm owned by the Benahan and Cameron families who profited from free black labor. Mm. Stagville has a particularly brutal history. Black enslaved people were beaten regularly and even raped. 
Today, Stagville is a historic site dedicated to centering the history, stories, and experiences of enslaved people. Um, you know, my son is going to start reading The Help. That's the one of the reading things that he has to consume in junior high. And I've been thinking a lot about how Black bodies have served to make the lives of white people easier, particularly white women, like mm-hmm. as far as domestic labor right. goes. And even, t- I mean, that's still a thing to this day. Like a kept woman is usually a, a, a white woman who has people who clean her house for her and, and cook her food for her, right? Like that idea hasn't gone yeah. away. All I'm saying is I would like a maid. And <laughs> I would, I mean, I, I mean, I can't afford to pay one, but man, it does sound nice to have a lot of extra help. It, it would Don't be nice think? to have a lot of extra help. Yeah. But uh, you have to pay for it. You have to pay for it. You have <laughs> yeah. to pay these people. You have okay? to. So uh, during the American Civil War, North Carolina was the last state to secede from the Union. Interesting as there was a strong unionist presence in the state. Most farmers in the state were non-slaveholding, small land-owning family farmers. I did not know that about North Carolina. Me neither. But it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Interesting. And these folks did not want to jeopardize their living by leaving the security of the union in order just to save slavery. Mm. But North Carolina still had land requirements in order to serve in the General Assembly. So poor farmers did not have the same say in government as the gentry farmers. So gentry farmers are large uh, landowners. Yeah. Really large. Okay. Okay. So North Carolina also had a large Whig population, which turned out to be a large unionist population. The Whig Party. Oh, boy. I see his name already. I'm triggered. (laughs) (laughs) The the Whig Party was a political party formed in 1834 by opponents of President Andrew Jackson. So the Whigs are good. (laughs) Well, some of their ideals were good. (laughs) Okay, so the Whigs were one of the two major political parties in the United States from the late 1830s through the early 1850s. They were not formally an anti-slavery party, but abolitionists had more in common with the Whigs than the pro-slavery Jacksonian Democrats. Unionists were able to convince North Carolinians to adopt the watch-and-wait policy to give Lincoln a fair chance at the presidency. But North Carolina joined the Confederacy after the attack on Fort Sumter, when President Lincoln asked for troops from North Carolina to put down the rebellion. North Carolina seceded from the Union on May 20th, 1861. The Emancipation Proclamation went into effect on January 1st, 1863. The news of emancipation arrived relatively quickly in North Carolina and unchained one in every three residents. That's a lot. Wow. Yeah. It took months for Black people deeper south to learn that they were now legally free. Emancipation didn't arrive at its final southern outpost in Galveston, Texas, until June 19, 1865, which is now commemorated as Juneteenth. Hell yeah. One of my favorite holidays. But also, (laughs) the news of the Emancipation Proclamation was wonderful for enslaved Black people to receive, but not necessarily for the human traffickers. So they were really sneaky 
and did things to extend the use of their labor force right. by moving them around, moving them to other parts of the country and even out of the country and back for periods of time. So anyway, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Durham was a nationally known economic hub for Black people and was known as the Black Wall Street. Every time I see Black Wall Street, I see flames in the future because usually they burn them down. Anyway, Durham's Black Wall Street housed a vibrant and successful variety of Black-owned businesses. Four blocks served as a hub for Black Americans and was a thriving commercial area with tailors, barbers, drugstores, and so much more. It put Durham on the map as the capital of the Black middle class in America. And the city became nationally renowned for fostering Black entrepreneurship. Mm. Successful Black business owners collaborated with wealthy white people within the community, including the Duke family, to build schools, hospitals, and churches. You love to see it. You do love to see it. And it's interesting. You know, I've talked about this before. Southern Black and white relations are very different than Black and white relations in northern parts of the country. I'm talking the Midwest and California and Phoenix, this wouldn't be allowed to happen at all, this partnership right. between people. And, and if it did, I doubt it would be racism is uh, out in the open in the South. If they don't like you because of your race, my experience is they'll let you know and you can keep it moving. <laughs> but in, like in places like Phoenix or um, Washington State, you don't really know they're a little more sense, sneaky about you, it. Yeah, you just sense, oh, I've been sitting at this table in this restaurant for 45 minutes and I'm not getting any help. Maybe it's because I don't look like everybody else in here. Yeah. You know, you're not, but you're never 100% sure. Anyway, all that to say, we love to see it, as Beth has written in the script. <laughs> but the construction of the Durham Freeway, number 147 in the 1970s, which ran directly through and destroyed the black neighborhood of Haiti, severed Durham's central Black business district, disrupting more than 100 Black businesses and displacing hundreds of Black families. Although the city government promised to rebuild the community following urban renewal, guess what? <laughs> they never did. And urban renewal Surprise. is a, euph yeah, it's a euphemism for Negro removal. removal. And, yeah. Um, yeah, those that, that that's what happened. They, Probably never built it back. So they didn't burn down Black Wall Street, but they drove a freeway right there. Paid paradise to put up a parking lot. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Durham is home of Duke University. It began as Trinity College, but was renamed Duke University in 1924. In 1910, Dr. James E. Shepard founded North Carolina Central University, the nation's first publicly supported liberal arts college for Black people. That is exciting. Very exciting. I don't know much about the Ivy Leagues, but Duke is an Ivy League school, right? No, it's not. It's, it's in the not? next. It's in the next sentence. <laughs> Wait a minute. Duke University is not part of the Ivy League. What? <laughs> but I had no idea. It is equally selective. With an acceptance rate of just 6%. Well, um, that sucks. This means that of the nearly 50,000 students who apply each year, 94% are denied admission. The students who go there are often considered just as elite as those who attend Ivy League schools. By the way, this is such a sham, this, these college rankings. Yeah. And 
the colleges like lie and say mean things about other colleges to be petty bitches to, to lower <laughs> others. It's a whole mess. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why I believed any of this stuff. <laughs> So, yeah, there's something about sports and Ivy Leagues. I didn't really get it, but the Ivy League schools aren't as focused on sports or something, or maybe it's the other way around. Anyway, there was some differentiation between the schools and sports, but I don't care. Interesting. You know what I say? <laughs> Fuck the Ivy Leagues. Nobody should go there. And um, <laughs> have you ever met somebody who graduated from an Ivy League school? Like, you, never, you never hear the end of never it. Never hear yeah. the end of it. Jesus Christ. <laughs> On um, uh, 30 Rock, Twofer, he graduated from Harvard and they were always teasing him because he never stopped talking about it. Oh, I don't Do you remember recall that. that. No. no. <laughs> But he, yeah, but that's basically, I mean, uh, people who graduated from Harvard, it's like part of their name. Yeah. Hi, yeah. I'm John Smith. Harvard. I graduated from Harvard. Yeah. Hi, Wendy Williams, uh, Chico State. <laughs> so, anyway, today, Durham is a slow paced southern town with equally large portions of black and white residents, approximately 40 40. And a history of racial tensions, including those between a wealthy, predominantly white university community and its poorer black neighbors. Yeah, there's I mean, as far as racial history, we it would be impossible yeah, to cover I, all of it. Especially in with Carolina. this story, because yeah. there's so much to this story. And so the uh, history portion was cut a little bit short, a little bit short, but great job, my friend. Now let's well, get thanks. into Crystal's. <laughs> Early life. So Crystal Gail Mangum was born on July 18, 1978, and she grew up in Durham, North Carolina, the youngest of three children. So she was the baby. We all know one of those, right? Am I right? <laughs> so she she had her parents were Travis and Mary Mangum. Her father was a truck driver and her mother was a homemaker. On August 18, 1996, Mangum filed a police report alleging that in 1993, when she was just 14 years old, she was kidnapped by three men driven to a house in Creedmoor, North Carolina, 15 miles away from Durham, and raped. Okay, so she went through all the steps to file a police report for this at the time. Right. She said one of the men was her boyfriend at the time, who was a physically and emotionally abusive man seven years older than she was. This would have made him 21 when she was 14. Oh, my oh, God. Poor thing. Terrible. I know. But police did not pursue the case after she backed away from the charges. Relative says she feared for her life. Reportedly, the year after the alleged Creedmoor rape, Mangum was having emotional difficulties, including suicidal thoughts. Mm. So she saw a psychiatrist and took prescription medication for a year. That's great that she had access to that care. Yeah. Family members disagreed about what really happened. Her father later said he believed his daughter was not raped in that incident, while her mother has said that Creedmoor incident did occur, but it happened later when her daughter was 17 or 18. Mangum's ex-husband, Kenneth McNeil, had said that he believes the 1993 rape incident happened just as Mangum said. Well, at least one person. One person believed her. Believed yeah. her. But yeah, I mean, just but how devastating to have your parents not believe you, exactly. especially her father. Yeah, her father. I feel like, you know, her father was a truck driver. He was probably away a lot. And yeah. So, yeah, I imagine, too, that mom and dad had to have been going through some sort of denial 
process. It, yeah. If something bad happens to your daughter, it might be hard to believe that it happened and you couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. And so, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I just, devastating is a great word for to describe how she must right. have felt afterwards. After Mangum graduated from high school in 1996, Kenneth, her then fiance, encouraged her to join the Navy because she wanted to see the world. She began her two-year active duty in the summer of 1997, marrying Kenneth, who is 14 years her senior, in the fall of that year. So she likes older men. Yeah, but you kind of hit the nail on the head. You know, her dad wasn't around very much. Right. And, um, well, when she really needed him, wait, he, right, right. he yeah. uh, dropped the ball. Yeah. She was trained in Virginia. Then the couple drove out to California, where she was stationed at an ammunition ship. But she was frequently at sea, leading to problems in the marriage. On June 16, 1998, she accused her husband of taking her into a wooded area and threatening to kill her, which he has denied doing. When she failed to appear at a court hearing, the complaint was dismissed. The two separated after 17 months of marriage, and that same year, Mangum was discharged from the Navy. She had begun a relationship with another sailor and was pregnant. That man would have another child with her as well, but the relationship didn't last. So now let's get into the timeline. So by 2002, Mangum was back in Durham working as an exotic dancer. In June 2002, she was arrested while working at a club called Diamond Girls. According to the police, she removed a customer's keys to his taxi cab while giving him a lap dance, then stole the taxi <laughs> while he was in the bathroom. I mean, come on, it's all in good fun. All in good I would fun. like to know what, what went through her mind. <laughs> she, uh, did this. She, she just wanted a good time. Also, I don't know, you know, sex workers are not a monolith. But I have heard some exotic dancers say that they consider dancing as sex work. But I don't know if that's across the board. So I was just putting that out there because I think okay. it does come into play with how the police treat her when yeah, she yeah. does say she's harmed. So police chased her at speeds of up to 70 miles per hour, frequently in the wrong lane. Oopsies. And when one officer tried to approach her, she barely missed running him over and struck his uh, patrol car instead. Hey! <laughs> Just a good, I mean, what an adventure. I think just having a good time. What's also crazy to me is black women don't do shit like this. Like steal a car and go on a wild police goose chase. We're better than this. Come on. (laughs) So she tried to escape again, but the taxi had a flat tire. Darn it. Finally, in custody, she was found to have a blood alcohol content uh-oh, of 0.19. And the state limit is, you guessed it, 0.08. And while being questioned, Mangum passed out, whoopsies, and was taken to the hospital. Yeah, I mean. She was wasted. She was wasted. But, I mean, let's consider what happened to her the past couple of years. It yeah. is no surprise yeah. that she is in pain and needs an escape. And yeah. alcohol does the job. So in 2003, she pleaded guilty to four misdemeanors. Larceny, speeding to elude arrest, assault on a government official, and DWI. She served three weekends in jail, was placed on two years probation, and paid $4,200 in restitution and court fees. And I I think she kind of got off easy on that. For a DWI? I mean... And all the other stuff she did? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the goose chase and the 70 miles an hour and hitting a police car. 
That's I'd even light for the... a DWI. But of course, it, no, it was 2003. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? You're. I feel like you're looking at it from an uh, an Arizona lens. You know, yeah. we were under the terror of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, yeah. and they, if you got a DUI in Arizona, fucked, man. it was you were wearing those it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, a huge deal, like three or four times that much in restitution and court fees. Well, I don't know. Uh, I think the restitution and court fees is probably in line, but the the jail time. I know people who have served months. For, oh, really? For DWIs? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember that being a really big deal when we first moved there. Not that driving, dr- driving drunk is a terrible decision to make. And I think as a society, we have zero tolerance for it at this point because everybody knows better. There's ride sharing, right? There's always a way. But in 2002, 2003, I was much younger. And I'm going to be honest, I mean, but by the grace of God, there go I. Yeah. It's one of those one of those times where I consider, man, I could have gotten a DUI, but I, I yeah, lucky we all I do stupid things. Yeah, we all. Real. Yeah, except I feel like you do a lot less stupid things. Oh, than no, me. no, I did some really stupid things when I was young. <laughs> yeah, really dumb. Yeah. Okay. Relatives described Mangum as a hardworking single mom who ran herself ragged trying to support her children and improve her life. Hard stuff, y'all. At yeah. some point, Mangum suffered a mental breakdown and was taken to a hospital in Raleigh. Family members said that they didn't know what caused the breakdown, but said she felt burdened by mounting debts. In 2003, she went to court to force the father of her children to pay child support, and the court sided with her and ordered $400 from his monthly paycheck to go to child support. So that's good. That is good, but I'm disappointed in her family for acting like, we have no idea what happened to her. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or why she had this breakdown. Yeah. And again, maybe we just know better now. But to me, this is clearly a it's woman. pretty obvious. Who was it? She's suffering. in crisis. Yeah. yeah. Because of some pretty traumatic things that happened to her more right. than once. Yeah. In 2004, she earned an associate's degree from the Durham Technical Community College. She then enrolled as a full time student at North Carolina Central University studying psychology and maintaining a 3.0 average. Okay. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Crystal. Yeah. She also worked at one time at a nursing facility and another at a $10.50 an hour assembly line job. Oh, two so jobs. She, she's, she's doing she, it. She is working her ass off. Busting yeah. her ass. Right. Yeah. Well done. She continued dancing and according to employees of clubs that she worked at, she was known as a problem dancer, frequently clashing with customers and other dancers and often passing out. So I think she's abusing alcohol. And it's yeah. it's not like you said earlier, it's not a surprise it's with uh, all the trauma she's been through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on March 13th, 2006, Duke's lacrosse team threw a party at an off campus house near Duke. Forty one of the 47 members of the team were present. All but one of the players on the lacrosse team were white. Among them were David Evans, Reed Seligman, and Colin Finnerty. Wow, if those aren't so white, white why do you pick whiter names? names? <laughs> <laughs> it was spring break and drinking had begun early that day. At their practice earlier that morning, their coach had given each member $500 for meal money during spring break. And they what? were wilding out. Yeah. <laughs> 
$500 for meal? For meal money. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my God. Isn't that That's... their parents' job to give them money for no. food? But Well, yeah. yes. But if they are doing team stuff for the school during spring break. I don't know anything about sports stuff. You know, that just seems like they they spend a lot of money on sports, these schools. They do. But my understanding also is lacrosse is a big deal at Duke. And if it makes the school a lot of money, better believe, best believe that even on spring break, whenever those boys need some food, the school is going to cover it. <laughs> so uh, let's see. So at some point, some of the men wanted to go to a strip club, but because some of them weren't 21 yet and they had been drinking all damn day because spring break, woo! <laughs> it was decided that it would be better to have the strippers come to them. Okay. <laughs> Everyone chipped in to pay for two strippers to come to the house. <laughs> they just used their meal money. <laughs> to pay for strippers, yeah. Wow! I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> you can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. So much of the following details of the timeline are from the book, The Price of Silence, The Duke Lacrosse Scandal, The Power of the Elite, and the Corruption of Our Great Universities by William Cohan. Mangum and 31-year-old Kim Roberts were hired to perform at what they thought was a bachelor party at 11 p.m. that night. Kim believed it was going to be a small party with about 15 guys. Kim arrived first and quickly realized that it was not a bachelor party, but a Duke student party. She didn't like the situation. She thought it would be a smaller group of older men. 
But she stayed, waiting around for about 30 minutes for Mangum to show up. Kim was half Black and she was half Korean. But the men there thought she was Latinx. And when you are looking at somebody who's not the same race as you or who you're not familiar with, they can all look the same. Right. So that could be why all these white guys were like, I don't know, I think she was Latinx. Yeah. Also, they had requested two white women. and Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Why white women strippers? Very different. By the way, uh, so there are everybody's got different tastes, right? Right. When you go to the white strip clubs, you can expect like big boobs, very lean legs, very like tight booties. But when you go to the black and brown strip clubs, a ba blow, ba ba blow, boom 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 boom. Which is so much more exciting, if yeah, you ask me. I, th- but... I think so, too. But, you know. <laughs> they, we're looking for two fine young ladies with very long backs. <laughs> <laughs> so the men, the men were expecting the second stripper to be white. But when Mangum was dropped off by her driver and the men realized that she was not white, there was some discussion about whether or not the women should even perform. Mangum was also intoxicated, having earlier consumed alcohol and cyclobenzaprine, a muscle relaxant. Uh-oh. But the men decided to go on with the show. Kim discussed logistics with David Evans and Dan Flannery and the need for the men to be respectful. <gasps> the show must go on. <laughs> so, must... <laughs> Most of the men, around 20 to 25 guys, were in the front room of the house while the women started in their show. The men started hollering and cheering, and Kim began feeling unsafe. One of the men wanted Kim to put objects in her vagina and held up a broomstick. Oh, my God. That would be terrifying. Now, I have to also say something else about drunk white college boys. Oh, God, gross. They're the worst. They are some of the wildest Things a normal human wouldn't think to do. These yeah. boys, when they get drunk or high. Uh, in groups, especially. In groups, yeah. It's terrifying. So yeah. I do not blame Kim for yeah. being like this. These uh, guys are yeah, wild enough. A broomstick? <laughs> a broomstick. Yeah. That Sir, would be terrifying. My guy. You're, yeah. yeah. That's it. Okay. So yeah. anyway, sorry. So, I, I yeah. have to say yeah. that because I went to a predominantly white school and these mm-hmm. white boys are crazy. So... <laughs> So at that point, Kim abruptly ended the show and the women went into a bedroom. David Evans, Dan Flannery, and two other men followed the women into the bedroom to apologize. But the women locked themselves into a bathroom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Manga began yelling at the men to leave them alone, but was also arguing with Kim about leaving. She felt that they could make more money. In the meantime, the men at the party were becoming angry because they felt they had been cheated and they wanted their money back. Dan Flannery offered the women $100 to come out of the bathroom, which they did. Kim went to her car and changed her clothes. So he offered them the money just to get out. (laughs) Oh, yeah. At this point, he was like, this is not a good scene. Yeah. You ladies, come out of the bathroom. I'll give you $100 and you can just go home. Kim went to her car and changed her clothes. Some of the men came to her car window and asked her to help them get Mangum out because she had passed out on the porch. (gasps) Oh, no. So this is another thing that hadn't occurred to me is these are two women here to work in a room full of drunk men. And I guess if it were me, I would feel a responsibility as the other woman there to make sure we both got out. Get out. 
Yeah. Right. But her and Kim, it sounds like they didn't Kim, know each other. Kim was like, bye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the men got Mangum up and walked her to Kim's car. However, Mangum was somewhat incoherent and she was mumbling about not wanting to leave because she felt there was more money to be made. Kim noticed that Mangum's bag was missing. So she locked Mangum in her car and went looking for the bag. She couldn't find the bag. And when she got back to her car, Mangum was out of the car, stumbling around barefoot without her top on, yelling. <laughs> oh, no. I've been there before. <laughs> <laughs> not my best, not our best moment, right? No, no. <laughs> David Evans was trying to get her to come inside to find her purse and shoes, but she was having none of it. Oh, man. And like so the shoe's been on the other foot, right? Where you've had somebody who's like so drunk and you're like, come on, trying please. To, I'm yeah, just trying please. to help you. Please. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and they're like mumbling about something that makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so worried that the police would come, David decided, you know what? Party's over. He went back into the house, told everyone to get the fuck out. And the men were still angry because they felt that they had been hustled out of their money. And as they left the house, they began yelling racial slurs mm. at the women. Not so, good. To the people who are like, these young men are completely blameless. Nah, no. Uh, this is strike no. one. We're yeah. acting like, oh, I would say this is strike three. Okay, yeah. strike three. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Because of the way that they behaved right. earlier. I forgot about the whole yeah. night. Yeah. Yeah. As she drove away with Mangum, Kim yelled profanities back at the men and said that she would be calling the police. Kim did as she said she would and called 911 to report the incident, but did not give her real name. She reported that she had been called the N-word by some men at a house and gave the location. After calling 911, Kim tried to get Mangum to tell her where she lived so she could drop her off. But Mangum did not respond because she was passed out. So Kim called her agency to have them call Mangum's driver to come pick her up. But they were no help. So Kim drove to a nearby Kroger grocery store, found a security guard, and asked him to call the police, which he did, reporting that there was an inebriated woman refusing to get out of another woman's car. Meanwhile, police investigated the previous 911 call, going by the house where the party had been held. But by then, all was quiet and there were no men loitering in the area. When police arrived at the Kroger, they found Mangum passed out in Kim's car. Kim told police that she was the one who had called 911 earlier about the racial slurs and then claimed that she had picked up Mangum as she was walking down the street nearby because she was concerned for her safety. So Kim just wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. She wasn't telling them the truth. But, you know, she had reason not to, you know, working as a stripper. She probably just didn't want to tell them about that. Right. And when have we known police to say, Ah, here are these two fine young women of cobblers, sex workers. Let me go and help them exactly. and see whatever they need. I'm going to give it to them. Exactly. So Kim had only met Mangum that night, did not know her name, only the pseudonym she used, which was precious. Mangum did not have her purse, had no ID. She was only half dressed and could not walk or talk. So at first, police were going to bring Mangum to Durham County Jail on a 24 hour hold. But then decided that because of the state that she was in, she met the criteria for an involuntary commitment. Police took Mangum to a local drug and mental health center. Wow. She was in the process of being involuntarily committed when after being asked a leading question, she made an allegation that she had been raped at the party. So, yeah, the leading question was, were you sexually assaulted tonight? 
And she said yes. Oh. <laughs> so that was the leading question. Yeah. Oh, boy. At that point, the involuntary commitment process was stopped and a criminal investigation began. She was taken to Duke University Medical Center, where a university policewoman reportedly saw her crying and visibly shaken. All of this is so weird to me, only because I've never seen this before. A black woman is drunk and high, and she is going to be committed, not taken to jail. And then she says, I've been harmed. And they're like, we're going to investigate immediately? Yeah. I've never seen anything like it. So Mangum alleged that she and Kim had gotten into a fight outside the house, that Kim wanted to go back in, but she did not, that one of the men pulled her from the car and groped her, but she did not allege rape. Moments later, she changed her story again and alleged that she had been raped. She then said she didn't want to talk about it anymore, started crying and said something about having been dragged into a bathroom. An RN at the hospital examined Mangum and believed that she had been sexually assaulted. Mangum was seen by a total of seven nurses and physicians, as well as by police officers. She gave differing accounts of the assault to each one of those who interviewed her. Mangum reported pain of 10 on a scale of 10, but nurses and doctors could find no evidence of this pain. I'm not a doctor or anything, but I guess there's... When somebody says they're in pain, um, there's certain things that you can notice. Mm -hmm. Shaking, your high blood pressure, yeah, things like Mm -hmm. that. But they didn't see any of that. Yeah, but historically, when a black woman or a woman of color says she's in pain, they don't believe them anyway. True. And it takes them reporting pain levels that are much higher than they would be for a white woman for them to believe. Yeah. Gotcha. So a SANE, or sexual assault nurse examiner, in training, Tara Levesey RN, attended a second exam performed by a doctor. Nurse Levesey had completed the classroom requirements for SANE certification, but as of March 14th, she had not completed the practical part of her SANE training and had not yet received her certificate. Therefore, Levesey just acted as a scribe, writing down the findings. The exam was stopped when Mangum began to protest. According to Levesey, Mangum was responding to intense pain. Therefore, much of the sexual assault exam was not done. The doctor's only finding was swelling of the vaginal walls. It was found later that Mangum had a yeast infection which causes vaginal swelling. There were no tears or lacerations. Levesey later claimed that there was anal swelling, but this was not noted in the report. The doctor did manage to obtain evidence specimens, including oral, vaginal, and rectal swabs. Levesey wrote in her notes that Mangum's condition was consistent with sexual assault. The matter was turned over to the Duke University Police Department, but Durham police continued to make inquiries. This muddled the case. Ah, you mean it made them a bunch of messy ass hoes? Yep. Two different police departments, Duke (laughs) and Durham. Okay. So Mangum was presented with photos of the lacrosse team, and she picked out three men David Evans, Reed Seligman, and Colin Finnerty as her attackers. This sort of lineup was not standard. Usually victims are presented with suspect photos along with dummy photos of random men. But Mangum was presented with photos of only members of the lacrosse team. The case attracted widespread media attention almost from the moment it became public. The story was presented as three white males from privileged backgrounds at an elite university taking advantage of a black woman and a single mother from a crosstown black college, trying to make ends meet by working as a stripper. 
that was my impression. Yeah, mine too. Also, I think the Me Too movement started in 2006 by a black woman on the internet. And what do you know? It was that long ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this movement of women saying, I've been hurt sexually and saying something about it. This is around the time when it started. And uh, I don't know if it had gained much traction in Durham, North Carolina, but I do know Toronto Burke started it in 2006. Interesting. District Attorney Mike Nifong pursued the case aggressively. He was up for re-election, y'all. That's important. And was behind the other candidate who was seen as more of a social justice advocate. He made over 50 prejudicial statements to the media and initial media reports on the case largely reflected Nifong's statements and opinions. During the investigation, it was revealed that a couple of hours after the party ended, Ryan McFadden, a member of the lacrosse team, sent an email to the other players saying that he planned to have some strippers over, kill them, and cut off their skin while wearing his Duke issue spandex and ejaculating. <laughs> Hilarious! <laughs> oh, 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 chortle, chortle, chortle. What? <laughs> Sir! Oh my! See what I mean? Yeah, my right, ears are disgusting. They're yeah. Wild animals, and they call us savages. Oh my god! <laughs> so this was a reference to Brett Easton Ellis's book. American Psycho, which was required reading in some Duke literature courses, a lame and gross attempt at a joke. But due to this email, conspiracy to commit murder was added to the charges. Whoa! Oh. This is getting out of control. <laughs> yeah, it really oh, is. Yes. <laughs> Somebody doesn't read books. Oh my God. Wow. Wait, did you know that that was from American Psycho? Because I didn't. I didn't know American Psycho was even a book. Oh, yeah. That weird movie with Christian Bale walking around. I knew it was a book, but I never read it. Yeah. Yeah. No thanks. But uh, (laughs) whoa. Uh, Okay. Yeah. So look at us learning things. So Coach Pressler was forced to resign, and the remainder of the team's 2006 season was canceled. Ryan McFadden was suspended. David Evans graduated in May and was indicted the next day. Sophomores Reed Seligman and Colin Finnerty were suspended following their indictments. So these consequences came swiftly and strongly. Yeah. Yeah. As the Duke Lacrosse case unfolded, Naifong won the Democratic primary on May 2nd, 2006 for Durham County District Attorney. He then won the general election in November 2006. Later testimony from his campaign manager quoted him as saying that the case was worth, quote, a million dollars in free advertising, unquote. What a scumbag. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. But on December 16th, 2006, it was revealed that Nifong and DNA lab director Brian Meehan conspired to withhold exculpatory DNA evidence from the final report submitted to the defense team. Meehan withheld the names of the people that DNA testing excluded. Whoa, that's not good. No. I hate it when people use DNA to do bad things. Yeah. The DNA report said there were several possible sources for the DNA found on the alleged victim. 
The Duke lacrosse players tested by the prosecution, however, were excluded from any possible match to any of the genetic material found. The case had become very weak. Mangum had changed her story multiple times. There was no DNA evidence. Photo, video, phone evidence, and the timeline, and Kim Roberts's version of events corroborated the lacrosse members' version of the story. So on December 22, 2006, Nifong dropped the rape charge against the three lacrosse players, but continued with sexual assault and kidnapping charges. Uh-oh. And let's not forget the season was canceled. So not only are the players affected, but like fans, the school's missing out on money, revenue from this lacrosse team. The families or families, you know, yeah, yeah. Upset. I, yeah. I imagine scholarships might have also been canceled or suspended. Yeah, I don't know, but it a, a huge impact. Right. So on December twenty eighth, two thousand six, the North Carolina State Bar filed ethics charges against Nifong over his conduct in this case, accusing him of making public statements that were prejudicial to the administration of justice and of engaging in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. He was accused of violating four rules of professional conduct, listing more than 50 examples of statements he made to the media. He was also later found to have engaged in witness tampering, getting Kim Roberts to change her story by threatening her with arrest, and oh. doing the same with another witness, a taxi driver. Oh, no. Yeah, this guy's scum. Yeah. Oh, man. And I bet, I mean, he probably had a ton of people fooled. That's why he won the Democratic Yeah. Oh, yeah, race, he did. Right? Right. In January 2007, Mangum changed her story again, claiming that Seligman was not involved in the alleged attack. Because of the ethics charges, Nifong was required to recuse himself, and North Carolina Attorney General Roy Cooper assumed responsibility of the case. In April, Cooper announced that charges against the three players would be dropped and that, quote, based on the significant inconsistencies between the evidence and the various accounts given by the accusing witness, we believe these three individuals are innocent of these charges, unquote. Wow. The entire Duke lacrosse criminal case from the night in question to the dismissal of the criminal charges took 13 months. So, yeah, um, I remember when this happened and I remember reading an article and being very angry because I thought that it took place, that she was raped. I thought so, too. I But I was also angry that um, there's so much to this case. There's the race element. There's the Me Too element. There's the alcohol involved. Everybody was drinking that night. Right. And then there was the fact that if she did lie, she didn't get in trouble. So did she really lie? That's that was my yeah. thing. Yeah. Right. Right. In the meantime, Mangum gave birth to a premature girl in January of 2007. According to Mangum, after the events of the Duke rape case, she had difficulty finding a job or even renting an apartment. She had three children to support and had to resort back to using her body to make money. Yeah, she was a pariah in the community. Nobody, yeah. like, trusted her to, you know, maintain an apartment or a job. It was just nobody right. wanted to touch her. In 2008, Mangum wrote a book, oh, good for her, The Last Dance for Grace, the Crystal Mangum story, in which she still alleges that the assault had taken place, but she does not name the perpetrators. 
In her book, Mangum says she thought she was going to perform for an audience of five or six people, but instead found at least 20 people at the house. She says that the performance that night quickly escalated out of control and she and the other dancer tried to leave the party, but three players coaxed her back inside the house. Mangum quickly lost sight of the other dancer and was forced into the bathroom. She describes in detail being raped, but never identifies her alleged attackers, saying that it is difficult for her to remember everything about her attackers. In the book, she claims that the dropping of the case was politically motivated. And seems like it. A little bit. Um, I've listened to or read a lot about this case. I've listened to podcasts, and I don't think the attack happened. Oh? Yeah. Well, if they're willing to yell racial slurs at her maybe they didn't sexually assault her but i i do not believe that they did not harm her oh yeah i mean i'm not saying that they were completely innocent of everything and i think their behavior was abhorrent Mm -hmm. but i don't think she was raped yeah and i still go back and forth i mean ask me tomorrow and i might give you a different answer right (laughs) i did until i really started learning more about the case and there's really there was no time if you go through the actual timeline there was no time for this to have taken place Mm. because they have photo evidence Mm -hmm. they have phone evidence people on phones one of the guys that she accused was talking to his girlfriend on the phone when the attack allegedly took place she was with kim for most of the time and there was like a maybe 10 or 15 minutes that she wasn't mm-hmm. and that's when she was like passed out on the back porch and they have pictures of her passed out on the back porch oh. it's just there was no time for this to have happened and what she described yeah now other things that could have happened to her i don't know but uh, mm. the, what she described could not have happened, at least from what I've read. Mm, okay, okay, okay. I so see anyway. you, OG. Hey, now where do we go? Now where do we go? <laughs> yeah. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. In February of 2010, shortly after 11.30 p.m., police received a 911 call about a domestic dispute from one of Mangum's children. When officers arrived, they found Mangum and her boyfriend, Milton Walker, 33, fighting. 
Three children were inside the house, ages 3, 9, and 10. According to police documents, Mangum scratched, punched, and threw objects at Walker and told him, quote, I'm going to stab you, expletive, unquote. She then went into a bathroom and set his clothes on fire in the bathtub. (laughs) Officers called the fire department and put out the flames. No one was injured. That's a baller move. (laughs) I know. Wow. But then you would risk like your whole, your 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 whole shit getting burned up. You got to burn it. On the sidewalk yeah, or, on, or out in the yard. Yeah. yeah. Haven't Not you seen Waiting to Exhale, Angela Bassett style? <laughs> Burn them all up in his car and then light a match, a cigarette, burst into flames and walk away, hair blowing in the wind and everything. <laughs> so one time I got home and I found all of these clothes out in the street. Beth, <laughs> what happened? My neighbor, she threw her boyfriend's clothes <gasps> out in the street. They were like all over the street. Really? <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, wow, that, that is so dramatic. It's that's. I also, know that's it's not something I would you. ever do. If you're mad <laughs> I... and the person you believe did something wrong, yeah, it is. It is. Wow. Wow. Yeah, wow, wow. it's wild. Yeah. yeah. So Mangum was arrested and charged with attempted murder, arson, and child abuse because the children were present when this all happened. I see. I see. She was found guilty in December 2010 of three counts of child abuse, injury to personal property, and resisting a public officer. The felony arson charge was dismissed. She was sentenced to 88 days in jail, which she had already served while awaiting for trial. In early 2011, Mangum met a man named Reginald Day, 46 years old. Reginald was having difficulty paying his rent, and Mangum was having difficulty finding a place to live. Whoa! Did we just become best friends? (laughs) So weeks after the two met, Mangum and her children moved in with Reginald. It seemed a good situation for both. At first, it was just for financial reasons, but the relationship soon became romantic. On April 2nd, 2011, Reginald took Mangum to a family cookout, introducing her to his family for the first time as his girlfriend. When they returned home at about 1 a.m. on April 3rd, he flew into a rage when she had a conversation with a male friend in the parking lot of their apartment complex. The couple fought in their apartment, first verbally, and then it got physical. During the fight, Mangum stabbed Reginald with a kitchen knife. The stab wound was seven and a half inches deep. Whoa. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's deep. It's deep, and it sounds like this fight was epic. So now let's yeah. get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth. A man called 911 after the stabbing and identified Mangum as the attacker. Reginald was rushed to the hospital, but Mangum was nowhere to be found. A 911 call from her son brought police to a neighbor's apartment, where Mangum was lying on the floor with obvious injuries. Mangum was arrested and charged with assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill. Police were able to speak with Reginald when he awoke after surgery. He admitted to police that he had fought with Mangum, even that he had hit her and kicked down a bathroom door when she had locked herself in it and pulled her out by her hair. Oof. Yeah. That is, that's a lot. So he assaulted her. He beat her. Yeah. He beat her. He alleged that he had come to his senses and was walking away from her when Mangum grabbed a knife from the kitchen and stabbed him with it. While at first expected to survive, unfortunately, Reginald Day died due to medical complications. 
A longtime user of alcohol, while hospitalized, he developed delirium tremens from alcohol withdrawal. By the time this was diagnosed, he went into cardiac arrest and died 10 days after the stabbing. Mm. So let's get into the trial. So Mangum was offered a plea deal, which she rejected because she was confident that she would be found innocent. She believed that the jury would recognize that she was defending herself, and she did not believe that she murdered Reginald since he died from complications in the hospital or due to his alcoholism or whatever, rather than from the stabbing itself. During the trial, Mangum testified that Reginald was beating her in a jealous rage when she grabbed a knife and, quote, poked him in the side, unquote. The prosecution argued that the forensic evidence supported Reginald's statement that he was attempting to get away from Mangum when he was stabbed. The prosecution's star witness was Milton Walker, Mangum's ex-boyfriend, the one whose clothes she burned in the bathtub and threatened with a knife. Oh, God. (laughs) He was the prosecution's witness. So the prosecutors portrayed her as a woman out of control who solved her problems with violence. Ooh. (laughs) The seven-man, five-women jury deliberated for about six hours over two days before reaching their verdict, finding Mangum guilty of second-degree murder. Mm. She was sentenced to 14 to 18 years in prison. She and her supporters believe her past played a big part in the verdict. I'll say I think so, too. Yeah. She's projected to be released from prison on February 27, 2026. She'll be 46 years old then. She gave an interview on the Women and Crime podcast. There are friends, by the way. Shout out to yeah. Dr. Sachs and Dr. Schlossberg. <laughs> but in the interview, Mangum reiterated her side of the story, that she was an abused woman defending herself. Her children are being raised by their fathers. And my understanding is they come visit her oh, pretty regularly. Good. So Coach Pressler settled with the university for an unknown amount, and Finnerty, Seligman, and Evans are thought to have received as much as $20 million each in a wow. confidential settlement with Duke. Wow. The three men are now advocates for the Innocence Project. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's good. Wow, that's great. Although I will say that uh, uh, this case made me think of, I'll, I'll get into it in my takeaways, of okay. the, the being wrongly accused of something is, is also right. traumatic. So anyway, District Attorney Mike Nifong was fired from office. Oh, no. And he was disbarred and was sentenced to one day in jail. The only person who spent any time in jail in connection with the lacrosse case. Oh, <laughs> by the way, I also heard that he was the first person in North Carolina history to ever be disbarred. Oh, wow. He deserved it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he did. He did mess up. He did do that shit. Faced with the prospect of $180 million worth of lawsuits filed against him by the Duke players, he also filed for personal bankruptcy. Wow. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) In July of 2014, there was a call for all the cases Nifong had prosecuted to be reviewed Mm. on the basis of his having shown to ignore due process in some cases including the murder trial against Daryl Howard, a man who had been convicted in 1995 of a 1991 murder of a woman and her daughter. In 2014, Daryl Howard, who at the time had been in prison for murder for 20 years, was granted a new trial because Nifong had withheld evidence in the trial that led to his convictions. Two years later, following a hearing where the state was asked why the convictions should stand, 
the murder conviction was vacated and Howard released from prison, noting that DNA evidence not presented to the jury would likely have exonerated him. Oh, wow. wow. This guy was what a using piece of shit. DNA yeah. to keep people in prison? He yeah. was hiding the DNA results? Oh, what a I'm piece disgusted. of shit. Basura. Yeah. So now let's get into our takes, Beth. What are your thoughts? I'm just going to have okay. a conversation with my friend about. All right. <laughs> so I, I believe that Mangum is a psychologically damaged woman. Mm-hmm. I don't know for sure what happened to her. Mm-hmm. Was she raped when she was 14? And did this cause her mental health issues? Or was it something else that happened in her family? I don't know. Um, I kind of think that she was raped at some point. Yeah. The fact that her father was a truck driver and often away from the house mm-hmm. could have caused attachment issues, yeah. but it doesn't explain everything. Okay. She clearly had issues with alcohol, which many people turn to when they are in pain. We talked about that. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of her decisions, predicaments, were influenced by alcohol, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, it does seem that way. Yeah. The men at the party behaved abominably. We talked about that. Even if there was no sexual assault, a threat with the broomstick and the racial slurs definitely contributed to what happened. Horrifying. But but that's the thing is when when this case came out, I was familiar with the phrase boys will be boys. And I assumed if they had done it, nothing was going to happen to them. Oh, what right. a sup! Yeah, but what a surprise! They canceled the whole lacrosse season. What is going on here? <laughs> they, they might go to jail. I I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so a lot of like uh, documentaries and articles and stuff like that had this bent where you know, of course, if they didn't do this, then yeah, it's horrible that they got accused of something that they didn't do, but. I kind of had a hard time feeling sorry for them. <laughs> hey, I, I would say now if $20 million uh, is yeah, compensate for it, I money, think. Yeah. But <laughs> even if they didn't get the money, I mean, they're white, they're white men at Ivy adjacent schools. They would have yeah, yeah. fallen forward anyway. They're yeah. going to be all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do appreciate that they support the Innocence Project. I don't I do think too. they ever would, though, unless this happened to them. Like I, a lot of white people, they're like, la, 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 la. my life yeah. is great. And then something happens. They're like, oh, my God, I have this new thing. Did you <laughs> yeah. know that the justice system is fucked? Oh, my God. We yeah. should do something about this. <laughs> yeah, but Colin, do- we should. <laughs> But I do hope that they are, are different people today. They're probably yeah. more, more wiser. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. And doing really, really wonderful things. And um, yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you've ever had this thought about like your son or the men in your life, but I have always worried that like my brothers, my son's really young now, but that they will get accused of something that they didn't do, particularly yeah. attacking, I mean, you know, a white woman, a yeah. white woman. Yeah. And that has been yeah. used for centuries exactly. in this country to yeah. really harm black people. And so that's yeah. this story turns that stereotype and on its head on yeah. its head. And everything we expected would have happened didn't happen. And I yeah. just think that's it's a, a, a wild story. story. And, yeah. and there's a lot, a lot more to it. So oh, yeah. if you guys are interested, check out our show notes and 
get into it. All yeah. the links. There's other podcasts that did a really great job. Sisters Who yeah. Kill, Our Friends on Women in Crime, all did a really great job on this yeah. one. So. so finally, I do think that Mangum's past contributed to her conviction for murder. Oh, yeah. People think she's an out-of-control liar. So I don't think that there was anything that she could have done to get a better verdict. Yeah. And I myself don't know what's true and what's not true. But Reginald definitely abused her. He admitted it. Yeah. So I think that should have been taken more into consideration. And I think she needs psychological help, uh, which I doubt she's getting in prison. And really, when this all came about, the whole Duke lacrosse thing, Mm -hmm. at that point, once somebody realized that the allegations were not true, Mm -hmm. they should have gotten her psychological help at that point. Do they do that? No. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, like, in a, a perfect world, in a perfect world, I mean, what they would have done probably is just charge her with a crime. But in a perfect world, she needed psychological help. Yeah. Well, she was interviewed on Women in Crime. It was a really well done interview. I'm like, yeah. wow. They, she's very believable, too. She's believable. She's articulate. She's smart. I think she's re- represented herself in some instances that she's had to appear before the court right. in her life. She's getting out in a couple of years, and I think it reminds me of O.J. Simpson. So there's a race element on the O.J. Simpson matter as well. And I believe now that he did it. (laughs) But I definitely did not believe so before. And it just made me think of when O.J. went to Las Vegas and robbed those people and says he took his stuff back. He got a lot of time in jail for that small crime. Yeah, yeah, because people said, now you're going to get got it. him. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I feel like was done to Crystal on this one. Now we're right. going to get you. Right. Things that typically would not be in a black woman's favor in a sexual assault case worked in her favor. And she was unscathed pretty much as far as legal consequences are concerned. Right. But when the opportunity came to get her for something else, got her. They got, got her. Him. Doesn't yeah. have the same ring as got him. But anyway, they got <laughs> Uh, but man, what a wild story. Yeah. Oh, very wild. Yeah. Yeah. But she's getting out in a few years and I'm glad that she's still got a connection with her children. I'm glad that she's still got community in North Carolina. I wonder if she'll stick around. But anyway, I hope yeah, she gets help. Yeah. I do too. I do too. But when I was listening to her interview, I was like, wow, she sounds really great. And so maybe she's completely turned her life around. I didn't listen for that detail, but. I have hope. So that's all yeah. for the story. Let us know what you think. Now it's time to talk about how not to get murdered. Oh, what? <laughs> if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. What you got, Wendy? All right, Joe. So October, which is almost over. Get the fuck out of here, October. I hate you. But it is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And just wanted to shout out some domestic violence support and mental health support. So we wanted to shout out the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which you can call one 800 Seven nine nine seven two three three or text start to eight eight seven eight eight. Don't forget about that mental health hotline 
anywhere in the United States, you can text or call 988 for support and help if you are in crisis. Also, the RAIN Network, uh, it's the National Sexual Assault Hotline. They also have support advocates. And I wonder what might have happened if Mangum and Kim even had had advocates An to advocate, help navigate yeah. and explain the criminal legal system and the whole process and support from start to finish. So Rain has that available. You can go to online.rainrain.org or call 800-656-4673. And those phone numbers and links will all be in the show notes. All right. Thank you. You got anything else, BF? No, I don't. Okay. In that case, looks like it's shout out time where we're going to shout out any content by or about any people of color, any marginalized folks or minoritized folks or any true crime goodies. I, you're probably going to listen to this after Halloween, but I just wanted to say I finally watched The Fall of the House of Usher. Did you like it? I could not get enough of it. I love it so much. Loved <laughs> it so, 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 so much. Um, and I just finished it last night, so I don't have anything Sweet. new to recommend. Okay. <laughs> well, I got one for you. Okay. Bodies on Netflix. Have you watched that yet? No, but it's in oh my, my God. feed. Is it good? I binged it this week. Yeah, it's really good. Is it a drug show? A police no, show? it's not a drug show. It's oh, Okay. <laughs> Most of the characters are white, but one of the main characters is English with Nigerian and Indian parents. Ah. I forget her name. But okay. anyway, it features time travel and mystery, which <gasps> I love. Ooh, yeah. this sounds fun. Okay. Yeah. Ooh, I love it. Okay. It's pretty good. Yeah. Bodies Check it on out. Netflix. Okay. Thank you, Beth. So um, that is Bodies on Netflix. And let us know what y'all are consuming, what true crime goodies you have or any content buyer about people of color that we could put our foodies on to. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> that's the end of the episode. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, that's it for now. But Beth, where can the people find us in the meantime? Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors or by giving us a five-star review. Five stars only, please. Five stars only, please. Also, don't forget to subscribe. That's right. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
we come back. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into let's the get show. Let's get on with it. Ow! Yeah, let's do oh, it. Hey, let's see. Where's this? Where's that darn tootin' script at? There it is. Hey, y'all, she's joining us on the co-conspirator train. <laughs> Choo-choo! <laughs> so silly over here. I guess so. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> I just like saying North Kekalaka. Anyway. North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> North Carolina, come on and raise up. Take your shirt off. It's around your head. It's like a helicopter. Um, I mean, what an adventure. I think because spring break, woo! <laughs> A ba blow, ba ba blow, boom boom boom, <laughs> boom boom boom. Drunk white college boys. Oh God, gross! These <laughs> white boys are crazy. So. <laughs> that Sir, would be terrifying. My guy, you're. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Okay. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> oh, 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 chortle, chortle, chortle. Somebody doesn't read books. <laughs> oh my God. A million dollars in free advertising, unquote. Ugh, what a scumbag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No thanks. So, 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 so much. Man, what a wild story. Yeah. Oh, very wild. Did you know that the justice system is fucked? Oh, my God. Hey, now where do we go? Now where do we go? Yeah. <laughs> Burn them all up in his car and then light a match, a cigarette, burst into flames and walk away, hair blowing in the wind and everything. Mark, Mike, 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 Miggity Mike. I might be making that up. Also, (laughs) she and her supporters, you know that teething gel? I'm going to have to put that on my cheeks. Yeah. She and her supporters believe, uh, I know what I'll do. She and her supporters believe. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'll make it work. Exculpatory, exculpatory DNA evidence. Your oh, turn. Oh, my turn. Severed Durham's several black business districts. Central. Oh, sent, severed Durham's. I should uh, blow up my screen. I'm sitting so far away from my computer. No reason why. No reason. <laughs> no reason. So it goes to like all these different places and you can just hop on and hop off whenever you want to. Yay! (laughs) And then I can make you walk. Whoa! Did we just become best friends? So weeks after the... Okay. Okay, night-night, friend. Love you. Bye. Love you, too. Bye. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. 
and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.